y'all. Today we're going to talk about black people in Liberia, which I just learned from this episode that almost 100 years before Garvey and the Back to Africa movement, white people organized to send black Americans to West Africa, specifically Liberia, and that many black people both didn't want to go and organized against this movement. Yet at the same time, black people were leading their own efforts out of America to go to places like Haiti or Canada or even Liberia. Today's episode is about the movement to colonize Liberia with Black Americans, the Black Americans who opposed that movement, Black-led movements to abandon America, and more broadly, citizenship in America, because in a society that did not see Black people as equal, Black freedom complicated that. So today I'm going to talk to Professor Usman Power Green of Clark University. He chairs the Africana Studies Department there, and... He is author of the book Against Wind and Tide, The African-American Struggle Against the Colonization Movement. And because he is super into Liberia, he's also currently in the process of writing a book about the black people who went to Liberia. So we're going to get a lot of cool angles in this episode. Thanks for coming, Professor. Yeah, no problem. This is a great honor to have anyone interested in my work and uh, talk about black history. It's what I do all day, every day, just like you. Your book centers around the American Colonization Society, which was founded in 1817 with the intention of sending free Black Americans to Africa and the Black Americans who opposed this from the very beginning. But before there even was a society with this intention, there was an ideology. From the beginning of America, really, white people have not seen Black Americans, free or slaves, as part of America and have wondered what to do with free Blacks. Not slaves because they were useful, but free Black people, including thinking about sending them away. I want to start this episode thinking about that longer history behind colonization mentality. Yeah. And so it's a really important question. I I think oftentimes we approach the early history of the United States in this sort of way of dichotomies, right? So it's like, oh, there's like slavery in the South, freedom in the North. And the assumption is that how white Americans thought about Black people is somehow like if they're living in a free state, they believe that Black people were somehow equal. This just isn't true. And so part of what my work looks at and discusses in detail is the sort of long arc of anti-Blackness. It's central to understanding American identity for the majority of those that reside in the United States. So beginning in colonial era, up until the founding of the nation and early republic, up until the Civil War, and afterwards, some would argue to today, the idea that Black Americans really have no place in the United States is sort of a central ideology. And that begins with Jefferson. It begins pretty much with everybody, you know, James Madison. All the founders, by and large, questioned it. Some worked actively to attempt to think of programs that might facilitate Black Americans not being in the what we think about as this evolving United States, but most just accept it as an axiom, that Black people are not equal. But the difference breaks down on whether or not these white sort of quote-unquote founders thought Black people could ever be equal. And that, that actually was debated among them. Some, you know, some said, no, of course not. Others said, well, they just need a chance. And how could they in the United States? There was definitely this idea that like America is a white nation, so there was no place for Black citizenship, no place for free Black people, which is one of the big reasons why when the American Colonization Society, the ACS, was founded, Black people were like immediately against this. Yeah. So there's a great irony with Black resistance to the American Colonization Society. And that actually just points directly to why they immediately were in opposition. One can imagine 
if all of the most wealthy, prominent, well-known and respected white people in your community join an organization that has at its root the idea that Black people were sort of never viewed as being a part of the community and that the best alternatives is for them to not be here. One could imagine why everyone would be outraged and be against it. So that is the central issue. It's not leaving. And this is part of what becomes challenging for us. Because Black people thought about leaving and settling from before, from the 1790s, for example, actually even earlier, in 1750s, 1760s, actually. Black Americans have pondered and written in saying, listen, we want funds to leave. So it's hard for people to reconcile that, but it's really simple. There are some Black people that say, I want to be out. And there are other Black people that believe that they want to try to to make this, quote unquote, imperfect union into a place for them. And Black people are not monolithic, so it shouldn't be shocking that the majority are going to come out. And there's always going to be a few that say, listen, this is not a place that we're ever going to be able to thrive. And that really gets into the difference between white-led colonization movements and Black-led emigration movements. Because Black people felt like if they were going to leave, they didn't need white people sending them away. And many were considering emigrating to places like Haiti, which, after the Haitian Revolution, was a beacon of African potential and Black nationalism. This is exactly a great point. And again, through the book, I hope I help people get that it's not all that complicated when you really think about it. And one pathway to understand this has to do with this guy, Prince Saunders, who I talk about. And Saunders is a fascinating figure because Saunders suddenly emerges considering leaving and and utilizes connections that Paul Cuffey, the famous sailor from New Bedford, Mass., make in England and other places when he goes there. And Saunders quickly realizes that there is tremendous interest in Haiti for a section of Haiti, because a divided island at the time, to go and to make Haiti into the sort of African homeland, a place where what we think about as Pan-African dreams later can be real, right? Because Haiti represents resistance to the colonial power. And so that's part of the movement in the 1820s, which I sort of begin the story with, is understand that this alternative, leaving for Haiti, because of the specific role that Haitian government plays in promoting that, and also British abolitionists too, it becomes something really important to Black Americans. And they organize Haitian immigration societies. Many of them have speeches and lectures. Even John Russell, who ends up going to Liberia, gives his commencement speech about the glories of Haiti, right? To a bunch of white people at Bowdoin College, which is sort of interesting, them sitting in the audience listening to him talk about Haiti. And it wasn't just Haiti. We definitely also have to talk about Canada. One thing that's misunderstood is that the first organization of sort of, this is like the late 1820s, of Black people led by Richard Allen to sort of form what we think about as, I mean, really the first abolition movements are started by Black people in Massachusetts and, and Richard Allen and folk. But in the subtitle of his organization is an immigration to Canada. So like, it's a long title, you know, it's like sort of the organization of uplift of African-Americans. And, and so we have to always put in context these other communities where Black people in America, in the United States, considered going and thought about and pondered. And in the late 1820s, Canada is also an important alternative for Black people in places like Cincinnati, for example, or also Pennsylvania, where they do go and settle. And so they're forming a concurrent settlements in Canada with the settlement, St. Mark's settlement, other settlements in Haiti and the United States. 
I talk about not in this book, but um, in, in work that I've done subsequent to this book, uh, this idea of trans communal migration. We're really caught about into the nation state. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, nation state, nations, Canada, Haiti. But really, black people are in some ways going to Canada because of British views around if you touch British soil by the late 18th century, you're free. And so, yeah, there is some of that going to Canada. And there's some of that with Haiti. Obviously, we talked about that. But another aspect has to do with these communities that are established. And so black people are actually as much migrating to a community, right, this transcommunal migration, as they are migrating to nation states, you know, to Haiti as a nation or to Canada as a nation or even to Europe or even to Africa. That just shows again that black people were against white people paying to send them away, not the idea of leaving America for the hope of achieving full citizenship somewhere else. Part of what I've discovered, you know, over the last 10, 15 years, and I, and I it was there at the beginning, but this is a nonstop debate and conversation actually within black communities among leaders. Because the thing is, is that, and even Peter Williams, so Peter Williams for those of you who are New Yorkers who are listening, you look up Peter Williams, prominent black New Yorker in the 1820s. And in this new book that I'm working on that looks at black colonization, I sort of talk about Williams actually defending his critique of the colonization society, even though as a prominent black minister, he's friendly in the context of New York philanthropic people who are politicians who are members of the New York colonization society. See what I'm saying? So he's like, he says just what you said. He says, I'm not against you. I don't think you're evil. Like, I don't think you guys are all evil. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that this organization, can't deny it, was established primarily Bushrod Washington, Henry Clay, by slaveholders. Y'all in New York may be trying to wrestle the reins and to change the vision of the American Colonization Society, which is what the New Yorkers claimed. But y'all can't deny that the most interested people in the colonization society are Southern slaveholders and people that want to get rid of us. So even though y'all get upset when we call y'all a bunch of racists who want to get rid of us, you know full well that I don't dislike you personally. I'm not against Blacks who go to Liberia either. I'm just saying that the colonization movement, colonization ideology, and the national organization is sort of filled with people who see this as a vehicle to get rid of free Blacks. And a lot of these issues that Black people were criticizing about the ACS caused some of his members to reevaluate and for the organization to have a big split. And actually the organization splinters in the 1830s, the American Colonization Society, because of mismanagement and because of this schism between those who are like, the only reason I'm paying a penny to this organization is to get all black people out of here in the South, right? If you're free, be out. Not all the South, but some stronger voice in the South. And then those who consider themselves, you know, sort of the clergy and other missionary types in the Northeast, particularly New England, who are like, whoa, 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 we're not, we don't want to believe in deportation as the main policy. Instead, we want to make this an organization that really functions around the idea that those blacks who want to go, as soon as you say you want to go, we got the funds to take you. And also they believe in Liberia as being a beacon for a broader Christian missionary project, which you know, is, is condescending and has all sorts of problematic sort of ways about it, but they see it as a positive thing. That's about the time when anti-colonization became like an official abolitionist platform. 
because it was assumed that if you sent all the black people away, slavery would never end because black people were some of the biggest proponents of ending slavery. And even if slavery did end, that could just be like a mass deportation of all of the former slaves to Liberia, which no one was trying to be forced deported. So that was the splinter where anti-colonization and abolition became the same. Yeah, that, and that's exactly it. I mean, what's interesting is the fact that those who were once white colonizationists, some of them really do go hard. They go harder against the colonization society in the 1830s. And that's usually where the story ends, by and large, because people don't pick up after 1839, for example. They don't really pick up the 1840s when there's a resurgence of colonization. I mean, I do my book in the Midwest, whereas I sort of show the way in which Black people in the Midwest are like, wait a second, like, things are bad out here. Like, it seems to me that colonization really hasn't gone away as Garrison and others said it would, and oh, it's a dead horse and all this stuff. And so we sort of stopped the abolitionist history in the 1830s, and that's it, if we're looking at abolition. But if you look beyond the 1830s, you see that in the 1840s, the colonization movement is really reborn in New England as well, not just the Midwest, which is mostly, you know, sort of my focus in the first book. In this book, I really look at the importance of colonization ideology in the 1840s into the 50s. You know, these are this is like decades. We just looked at the 20s, the 30s, and then I pushed into the 40s, right? So that's a 30-year arc of people making choices based on changing ideas about Liberia, about Black people in their role. And it's going to change again in the 1850s and in the Civil War. So we want a straight narrative, but historians are frustrating because we constantly are showing contradictions. You know, which are like, well, you know, not... You know, we're constantly always trying to provide context, right? We're always trying to say, all right, look, this is the majority. This is what they believed. This is a story you could tell. But let's not also lose the other side. I want to zoom into a couple of things you just said. First, you just mentioned that the ACS grew more popular in the 40s, especially in the Midwest. And it was because for a lot of Midwestern states, they didn't want Black people in their states. They were actually trying to add to their state constitutions. No Black people here. Illinois did it, and some other Midwestern states tried to follow. And part of saying no free Black people here meant that they had to find somewhere to put them. And Liberia was a place they were pro-sending Black people. Absolutely. And the reason why was that, remember, by the 1840s, we forget again this sort of displacement of of indigenous folk and, and native peoples and sort of the way in which America is evolving. I mean, Texas is going to sort of come in. The deep South is really emerging a state. So there's a lot of flux and fluidity happening in the country in the 1830s and 40s. And so in the 1840s, as we begin to spread and we're dealing with this issue of a balance of free states and slave states, and you know, if you bring one in here, you got to bring in another there. Again, we have to realize that places like Illinois and Indiana, which I talk about, Wisconsin, you know, California, eventually. These places are in flux. People are coming in in hodgepodge ways. Some are coming from Europe and, you know, they're, they're figuring out their state identity and they're figuring out how they fit an American identity in a nation that's divided over slavery, literally, like with a line. <laughs> you know what I mean? So this is where colonization ideology, and this is an important sort of distinction I make in the book, is that there's card carrying, meeting, attending colonizationists. And then there's everybody else who believes in the ideology and will drop money in the hat, right? And will preach pro-colonization deportation, but aren't actually members. And so the ideology far outstretches 
the actual membership base. Because if every person that believed in, in Indiana who believed in colonization ideology, black people deportation, you know, sort of defined that way, if they joined the organization, the organization wouldn't be so constantly financially strapped, right? And so getting people to believe in ideology and getting people to actually go to a meeting and give in their will for thousands of dollars, which happens all the time in the South particularly, right? There's a gap between that. And that actually is one of the reasons, as I said, that the colonization movement is constantly struggling for money and you know, struggling to get people to put mo- their money where their mouth is if they support it. But in that story I tell in the Midwest, you know, to pivot and to sort of provide a new context, you know, as I said, I don't spend much time. I spend a little bit of time, but not much in New England. But because I've been working also, you know, and particularly finishing this book on colonization movement in the North and particularly focusing on New England, very similar things are happening in New England. For example, Amistad, we forget about Amistad in Connecticut, New Haven. Remember them, that movie? They go back to Liberia, right? It's like we forget colonizationists in Connecticut. We sort of see the abolitionists in it, in the film, for example. But actually, the Amistad episode 1839 is a great example of how colonizations can rally to raise money to get involved in the political wranglings of that, and then, of course, are successful at getting the crew to, to go. And so this is what I mean by the complexities and the regional nuances. Funding keeps coming up, and funding was a big issue on both sides because another big opposition to the ACS was just that it was financially just like not feasible. It would cost billions of dollars to put the millions of Black people in America on boats and send them to Liberia. People assumed that it was so impossible that they should not even be trying to spread this message. But I also want to talk about two things that affected Black opinion about the ACS. And that was in 1847, Liberia declared independence from the ACS. And in 1850, the divided nation came up with a compromise, the Compromise of 1850, And part of that was the Fugitive Slave Law, which definitely check out episode three. Professor Jackson explains it really well there. Independent Liberia draws interest in a black nationalist sense. And the Fugitive Slave Law draws interest from black people in the sense of safety, because suddenly all free black people are at risk of being returned to slavery. Absolutely. So what's interesting about independence is that when you think about how long 1817 1816, they organized and sort of, you know, officially operating 1817, right? So 1817, 27, 37, 47, right? So like you're looking at a movement that black anti-colonizationists said like would never succeed. Critics who were not even black who were like, oh, it's, it's never going to even last. It's whimsical. Now it's 47. You're like, or even before that actual moment. And it's like, well, we're still here. <laughs> Hi, <laughs> we're still here. We're expanding. Right. We're continuing to do good work on the coast, trying to stop the slave trade, which is flourishing right near Liberia. We're trying. Right. And y'all keep mocking us. Right. We got the British north of us. We got the French and y'all are still mocking us. And we're trying to make real these things. And so by the 1840s, right, in 1847, when they declare independence and they sort of like are like, all right, look, we need to start functioning as an independent nation because of our borders and disputes with British ships, et cetera. It's hard to make the case three years later. That, oh, yeah, Liberia doesn't mean anything. And, you know, now it's the first black, it's the only black American republic, maybe arguably the second black republic sort of that exists. And so when Fugitive Slave Law jumps off, as usual, there are those who are pro-colonization, who live in New England, live in you know, the North, and they're saying, look, 
This is an outrage. And uh, if I was you all, I'd be ready to go. People show interest, particularly where I live in Massachusetts. I've met people, fantastic local historians, who approach me and email me and give me, hey, it's family I've been studying in Williamsburg, for example, Massachusetts, who, who left and I, you know, I tracked their trail and they end up in Liberia. And they're the ones that sort of helped me build this larger story because they literally pack up their things and they're out. You know, and there's other groups that go to Canada too. So yeah, so so Future Slaves Law is a big inspiration. There are those that stay and fight. There are those who in Northampton where I live and who go downtown and literally stand up and read this whole sort of sign this declaration that they're not going to tolerate it. And going back to 1830s, there were vigilant squads that you know literally fought physically white people that attempted to to snatch up. You know, the book Kidnapping Club just came out recently. You know, we didn't sit passively. We were fighting. We we're like, how we're fighting literally fighting. We're organized. But obviously, there are going to be some that, that are, are finished with the United States because the law is so egregious. And it's such a demonstration that if one believes in linear progress, which you know is a, is a social construction, you don't see that to be the case by the 1850s. In fact, it's like, wait a second. Like, and then Dred Scott, it's like, wait, we were never meant to be in the country. Like, wait a second. Like, there's no progress forward. We do win the court case in Boston. Sarah's Long Walk is the book. And so we fight and get integrated schools in Boston. So you know, there are these sort of victories within the context, but certainly not like a even you know straight line of progress forward like that. It's like go down and come back up and go further down. You know, so that's exactly what happens with the colonization movement too. Part of this like resurgence of interest in Liberia was a black-led immigration movement there. The president of Liberia was like, "Hey, come to the second black republic ever." come live here. And Black people started funding and trying to get there because of what we were just talking about. What's interesting about that moment is that, so suddenly what bursts on the scene, and actually I wrote an essay to try to argue that Black people every decade, there's actually a resurgence of interest in immigrationism and leaving. So like, you know, whether it's to go to Trinidad in the 1840s, I mentioned Canada is big in the late 1820s, 1830s, Haiti, 1820s, right? So there's like, sort of like major energy around leaving. And oftentimes history is told that it's like 1820s and then 1850s. And people sort of ignore the 30s and 40s. And so I just want to say that each decade there's interest and Black people are organizing and pondering leaving, going to the Caribbean, because British emancipation happens in the Caribbean. So in the 1830s and early 1840s, there's that interest. Not a big group go, but there's interest, right? So by the 1850s, when there's resurgence in interest to go to Haiti, led by James Theodore Holly, for example, or Canada, led by many people, but one of the most vocal people is Mary Chad Carey, you know, and then Delaney with thinking about Nicaragua, because there are free blacks who are like, come here. But then at the end of the decade, though, this is the part people don't get into. Most of them are somehow supporting colonization. By the end, it's like Delaney's on board, he goes in 59, Garnett's taking money for his African Civilization Society and partnered with Pennsylvania and New York colonizationists. Marianne Shad Carey even writes to Benjamin Coates in Pennsylvania. is like, hey, listen, be careful trying to recruit Douglas because Douglas is the most anti-colonization person. So he's never going to want to go to Liberia. What's interesting is that when you go to the end of the decade, you actually see a tremendous resurgence in the colonization cause. At this point, it's not really colonization in the same sort of way because they're independent republics. So this is part of the end of that sort of story, right? You know, you get to the, in the 1850s, the beginning is the resurgence of interest in leaving to a lot of places. Holly still stays in, uh, in Haiti and sort of convinces Douglas to come. 
and Douglas goes down, but then Douglas turns back because the Civil War. Douglas is like, wait a second, because Douglas is ready to be out. Fifty nine. Douglas is like, I'm out of here too. I'm going to Haiti. He is. But the Civil War happens. Of course, things change. But he does become the ambassador to Haiti, right? I mean, at the end of his life, Douglas does spend time there. Those who I write about in my book as the stay-at-home crew who are adamant and who mock Liberia, most are forced to acknowledge that even though it obviously is, is a place that really struggles with contradictions, no worse than America, like no, no worse than the United States, almost basically annexing Dominican Republic, and that's what Douglas gets sent to do. You know, Liberia is at least trying to keep alive some idea of republicanism, even on the ground. You know, the sort of political establishment is sometimes behaving in ways that not everyone's proud of in the era with indigenous folk. Right. We got to talk about it. But at the same time, when we look at the larger global context, they are on par with what's happening all around in terms of the forced effort at nation building and sort of what the consequences are of forcing boundaries and people in boundaries to buy into and join the sort of nation state. If we're going to talk about the larger global context, we definitely need to make a quick stop in Sierra Leone, because that was a very similar African colonial project done by Britain. No one ever talks about Black Americans established Sierra Leone. People never talk. It's like, who's the group of people that end up there, the majority of the beginning? They're Black people that fled on British ships, end up in Canada, end up in London, make up what they called in that era, the black poor in London, they're the ones that end up in Sierra Leone. You know what I mean? But we sort of like forget that like the history of Sierra Leone is tied to black Americans. We like ascribe them a British identity. Like, oh, it's black British. But it's like, actually, yeah, for like five minutes. You know what I mean? Like they were in England for like how long, right? They're in Canada for how long? And so I think that we have to understand the British deportationist implications. I mean, they literally provide you know, a model for the United States. I mean, they take the Maroons, Jamaican Maroons, end up in, uh, in West Africa. But absolutely, they're deportationists, like, all right, we'll make a deal with you. You go to Sierra Leone, we'll leave you alone. We'll put you in Sierra Leone, right? And England and, and Britain become a constant inspiration to white colonizationists, but also a constant thorn in the side of Liberians. And this is from the early on, but it really happens in earnest in the 1840s when British ships consistently ignore Liberia as an entity. They you know, dock there and they're like, oh, you got to pay a fee, sort of attempt to raise revenue when you use the ports. And the British ships are like, wait, who are you? What country are you? We ain't painting. You know what I mean? And so this sort of trouncing on Liberia's sovereignty and disregarding its sense of being an important place, it is sort of a colony, but not really of the United States officially, proves to be problematic. That disrespect of Liberian sovereignty is a major reason why Liberia declared independence when it did. But the problem continued. America didn't acknowledge Liberia until the 1860s, and neither did Britain and France, which was especially problematic in the 1880s during the scramble for Africa when Europe invaded a lot of Africa and put a lot of pressure on Liberian borders. But to tie this back to the ACS, the pro-colonization versus anti-colonization debate actually became international as both abolitionists and colonizationists took the debate to England. And British people often listen to Black abolitionists. It goes back to, you know, to what you had raised before. I mean, because of Sierra Leone and the inspiration that that provided white colonizationists, they were constantly trying to frame their movement as a kin. And that, they can run with that a little bit. But remember, by 1833, African-descended people in the Caribbean have 
shown the British that they need to emancipate, despite the efforts by British Caribbean white planters. To the contrary, by 1833, those in Parliament are somewhat decided at least. And so now that the same philanthropists and humanitarians who are in Britain are now squarely you know, anti-slavery, if you arrive in England and you're talking about some like gradual emancipation and deportation, it becomes increasingly hard. They want to know the answer to the question. They say, what, what's the answer? You guys pro-slavery, anti-slavery? Come out against slavery. And the colonization society with you know, Henry Clay and others who you know, are still slaveholders, they're gradualists. And Clay does emancipate his enslaved people you know, at the end of his life. So that's the issue. And so therefore, those who are against colonization enjoy sort of showing up and mocking the colonization society because they're an easy target because they can just simply say like, oh, prove that you're against slavery. The colonizationists are very you know, leery of antagonizing Southerners who are slaveholders who also are anti-colonization. <laughs> you know, by the 1830s, the majority of Southern whites you know, who were slave was like, yeah, we'll get rid of free blacks, but don't come with any emancipation nonsense. Right. So that contention really picks up. So colonization, as I mentioned in the book, is sort of like a middle road, actually, you know, in a nation divided in the late 1830s. Right. And that plays out in Britain, too, because Clay even goes to, you know, is in in Britain at some point, tries to you know advocate for Liberia and, and to leave him alone. And, and the British are like, whatever, you know, it's not a country. It's a settlement. So we don't even get what it is. British philanthropists did become slightly more sympathetic to the colonization cause in the late 1850s for two main reasons. One was the word of black colonizationists, and the second was promoting the plan of growing cotton in West Africa, which would undercut Southern cotton profits and maybe be a way to end slavery in the American South. Yeah, I mean, the free protos movement really picks up steam, you know, this idea of undermining places that still have slavery by free labor. That's the big debate after emancipation in the Caribbean. Like, you know, will they still work? And it turns out that they're still able to make profits. I mean, they bring people who are in India, for example, there to a place like Trinidad and other places, right? So it seems to make sense that by the 1850s that they would sort of say, oh, well, what, you know, maybe Liberia could be this sort of place in West Africa more broadly, not just Liberia, but West Africa more broadly. But it becomes way more complicated than that. And this is what Douglas even said. He's like, everyone's so focused on cotton, but slavery can be used for anything. And this is actually proved. Slaveholders were way more sophisticated in the 1850s, and they had already come up with many, many ideas for how to use enslaved people in an industrial society, with mining and all the industrial. Man, they had it all. They were working on it in Alabama and places. They were using enslaved people in the 1850s for other types of labor plans. And so this sort of idea that, that was believed that was about commodity-driven, the economic historians challenged that. And they're like, ah, you know, because they're looking at the planters' records. They're like, well, it seems to me they're using it much more diversely, enslaved people, than what other historians think about in terms of Cotton's role in driving the expansion. Now, Lincoln, we definitely have to talk about the Civil War era. And when it comes to Lincoln, he never really explicitly came out with a pro-colonization or anti-colonization stance. But he did take a lot of colonization-related action. Yeah, because, well, what happens with Lincoln and colonization is that, you know, first we have to realize that Lincoln is the first executive that actually creates a bureau (laughs) to promote black people not being here. Now, he labels it immigration, which sort of in our minds would suggest a link to like immigration as pro-black thing. But actually, you know, it's sort of much more in line with colonization ideology because that's what he believed. So Lincoln is going to also say, look, you know, this is something that I want to make take seriously. And... He listens to both sides. 
And most people don't, they hear the side that I talk about in my book, which are the anti-colonizationists and, you know, who are the majority of black abolitionists. And when they come and talk to him, and he's like, okay, yeah, you know, but we don't really talk about the fact that President Benson in Liberia sends Cromwell and others talk to Lincoln and persuade him that Liberia should be a better site. He sends ships as a loan to help them deal with pirates. He's like, oh, it's to help them deal with the slave trade. So he does give material support. And he listens to presidents of Liberia and other folks. So I would put him on the side of the council, even though he successfully sort of dodges it because he does it. He says, oh, we're going to do Haiti or off the coast of Haiti. I mean, so because of that, he's able to sort of avoid the explicit Liberia centric pro colonization. Like we're going to do Liberia. He avoids that. And of course, colonizations are very disappointed. You know, they're like, dang, man, we finally had someone who supported us and he wouldn't go with it. Lincoln's views on Liberia to me seem seem clear because of his fiscal supported, like I said, vessels also entertaining colonization, you know, sort of colonization, taking them as seriously as abolitionists, and also the fact that he actually provides funds a way to deal with these quote unquote refugees from the war. But in terms of you know, Lincoln scholars will go crazy, those who'd say, No, no, this is an example of Lincoln's compassion. He refuses to go with the racist colonizations. That's what they like to some like to say. After the Civil War, there's another cycle of Black interest in the ACS and the ACS struggling for funding, particularly because after the Civil War, not much changed for newly freed slaves in the South. Facing violent white supremacy, they didn't get the full promise of citizenship, and so they looked to somewhere else to find that. It becomes a major issue. I mean, the colonization movement always struggled to figure out the practicality. Without major federal funding, it just becomes very, very, you know, almost an insurmountable challenge. And so what they have to do is anytime, this is the 1870s and 80s too, it's like when they have a ship, they almost need people, you know, to who are literally getting ready to go because that will solicit donations, right? And so that's always the mechanism to make that happen. But it's difficult to sort of get that without major, major quantities of people. This is difficult. It's difficult terrain in the Deep South because planters aren't interested per se in losing laborers. It's already a mess in terms of politically speaking and you know, with the White League and, and other organizations, you know, beyond the Klan, which everyone focuses on, um, there are others that keep flourishing in the 1870s. It, it's difficult to sort of operate. You know, Black people are looking at Oklahoma Territory, Kansas has more practical and even while Liberia serves as a possible destination. And so the, the promise isn't really fulfilled, even though there's optimism, even though some prominent people like Garnett go in the 1880s and he ends up dying there. It never initiates a mass movement. But Again, does that mean it's a failure? I don't know if I'm interested in sort of like, did it succeed? Did it fail? As much as I'm interested in understanding as you suggested in the question, which is what are the conditions that inspire people to write to the ACS? And what do we learn about how bad things were in the Deep South? You know, and how does it illustrate everything that the pro-colonization people would say? You know, that even with rights, even with constitutional amendments, you're living in a society where white people with power are interested in preventing you by any means necessary from accessing power. But we keep contesting that. So it's not that it's just easy to do. We contest it, but it's a back and forth. By the time you get to 1880s and 1990s, it's so bad in the South that they win the long game in terms of reestablishing white rule. Yeah, honestly, like as I was reading the book and there was this whole idea of like, maybe we should go to Liberia because black citizenship may never be a thing in America, I was kind of like, mm, maybe Liberia was the right choice. We're still struggling to get there. So going somewhere else seems kind of valid when you look 100, 150 years later at where progress has kind of failed. That's the reason why every like 
few decades, there's a resurgent interest in, in leaving among Black Americans. I mean, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. I mean, you know, there is consistently an interest among people. And so, yeah, I agree. I think that there are folk who do think that. It just goes back to this idea at the foundation, whether or not anywhere else has greater promise than the United States for Black Americans as they continue to struggle and strive. And, and you know, there, there are consistently every decade moments that, that demonstrate the possibility and keep most people apparently here. You know what I mean? Um, you know, who you know, who would ever thought that this is the path to vice presidency, for example. I actually listened to a speech, you know, the other day. As we get to Liberia's 160 years and in independence, there was a, a talk given last year in the Library of Congress by prominent Liberian scholars. You know, one artist who's a writer, literally like America's brotherhood and thinking about the future and looking at the future as one directly linked to America as opposed to other places. And pro-colonization, pro-Liberia, sounded like the 18, you know, the pro-colonization Black people in the 18s, you know, last the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s, 1850s. And literally, it's like, you know, you're our brothers reaching out to you. Come here, support us. We are in your make. We are kin. And I was like, wow, still, right? So in 2020, there's still a belief among at least some prominent intellectuals and writers that the United States and Black Americans specifically, but U.S. nationally. You know, this person you know, applauded George Bush for intervening in the war and applauded Connie Rice for her role in diplomacy, right? So it's not just Black Americans. I mean, it's the American political establishment that continues to be applauded for supporting Liberia and encouraged to continue to support Liberia. That's where we are in 2020 from, <laughs> from a perspective of Liberia, you know, as the first female president of the continent, right? Let's not forget the achievements of Liberia. I'm with Cheryl Leaf uh, in her role. Years and years later, the option is still there. You can stay and fight for better here, or Liberia is still an option, as it has been for decades. And actually, even though this episode was very focused on those opposed to colonization. I was reminded as a young scholar uh, to not forget, which I haven't, to not forget that actually on the ground, more people went to Liberia than went to black conventions you know, or read the wow. North Star or other black newspapers. So let's not get it twisted in terms of uh, people's mentality and attitude. I hope you all enjoyed looking at both a book that was published years ago and a book that is currently being written. It was pretty cool. And as always, if you like this show, tell other people about it. Follow at We The Black People Pod on Facebook or Instagram. And all power to all people, y'all.